Pensacon week is finally here and coming up on today's show, I'll be chatting with upcoming Pensacon guest, one of the stars of iconic films Tron and Caddyshack, Cindy Morgan. But first, you'll be hearing my conversation with returning guest Jason Robbins about our thoughts on the original Tron movie as we look back at it on its near 40-year anniversary, the impact that it's had on the film industry, why it doesn't get the credit that it deserves, and why films from that early to mid-80s era have such a unique charm that no other film from any other era has. And stay tuned for the back half of the show as I'm going to go over my entire itinerary for Pensacon. Hope to see some of the listeners. Hopefully you guys will stop and say hello or come out to some of the panels that I'll be a part of. So all that coming up on this week's episode of the Derek Diamond Experience podcast, which starts right now. Hi, this is Cindy Morgan, and you know me from Caddyshack and Tron. You're listening to the Derek Diamond Experience. It is Thursday, February 27th, 2020, and welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast, episode 248 to be exact. Uh, this upcoming week is Pensacon, and it feels crazy that it's finally here. I, I always feel like it kind of sneaks up on me personally, but joining me for the opening segment for today's show is the co-writer of the film Monsters Anonymous and my co-host, on the Nerd Cave Retro Podcast. Welcoming back, Mr. Jason Robbins. How are you, my friend? I am great. Uh, what does this make? Like number 30? Close to it. It's got to be 27 or 28, I think. So Yeah, it's getting up there. Get, getting a little bit closer to that record. So I, I don't know if, if I speak for you, but as I mentioned a second ago, I feel like Pensacon, you know, because when people hear this the day it comes out, it's going to be the day before the convention. I always feel like Pensacon sneaks up on me every single year it kind of does um it it's weird like it always feels like it's so far away but then once the beginning of the year hits then it feels like it sneaks up on you it always feels like it's so far away and then once the the turn of the the year like january 1st all of a sudden it feels like all of a sudden it's pensacon well i think part of it is that we spend the holidays you know getting gifts for people you know, wrapping up the year, all that kind of stuff. So you're not really thinking about it. So then when January hits, it's like, oh, crap, it's like practically here. Yeah, because I had I didn't even book my I didn't even book my hotel till about three weeks ago. I was like, oh, no, I need to do that. <laughs> well, no, and it, it all worked out. And we'll we'll get into our panels uh, at the end of the conversation, because you and I are going to be quite busy during the yes, weekend we are i think between the two of us we have what like 10 11 panels something like that close to it I, yeah it's it's got to be right around 10 maybe a little bit less but so the reason why i'd ask you to come on the podcast is because i got to interview cindy morgan who's going to be at pensacon and she was also the star of caddyshack as well as tron and yes. i know you're you're a fan of the tron film so and plus there's going to be a big tron reunion actually at Pensacon, they're going to do a Q&A, and then they're actually going to show the film after the Q&A is over, which I think is a really cool thing, because we're, we're coming up on the 40-year the anniversary of Tron, which is crazy to think about. Oh, yeah. It's crazy to think about that that was... You look back on the... the, the I know we're going to get into this, but you look back on the special effects of that movie and um the very very early cgi that was used in that movie and it still holds up crazy well to this day well and i was watching it on disney plus the other day and it's you know fully remastered and everything and the effects actually still hold up i think fairly well because it has a very distinct look than any other films from yeah. that have that type of setting where it takes place primarily in a digital realm yeah. And the the way they did it, because I was reading up on it, you know, the, the fact that they, in a way, had to invent new technologies in order to do that, you know, to pull that off. It, it, you think about it today with the great special effects we have, you know, in some fully animated CG movies and some a hybrid of live action and CG. But to do it almost 40 years ago was practically unheard of. 
And that's the crazy thing too, is how did they talk Disney into doing this movie? Because it was such a radical concept and, you know, was it kind of in that era of Disney, you know, the early eighties, late seventies or early eight, early to mid eighties where Disney really didn't have a whole lot going on. And they were, I guess they were kind of in an experimental stage because they their cartoon movies really weren't doing that well. They weren't really doing anything spectacular. You know, this was around the time of like the Black Cauldron and all that kind of stuff. Um, they were kind of losing money with with Disney World and all that. So Disney wasn't in the greatest place when this movie came out. And it still was not exactly a box office success. Like it, it, it didn't gain success until, you know, the VHS market came around. The film, when it came out, didn't do that great at the box office, but the video game that was based on it actually made yeah. more money than the movie. Well, I still remember the video game being at the uh, the local skating rink when I was a kid, and it was always the one machine that kind of called to me every time I went in there because I loved the movie as a kid. I was one of the few kids I knew that actually liked that movie. I own, I had it on VHS that my I think my grandfather had taped it off of HBO for me. And then as I got older, I actually bought the VHS. Then I bought the DVD. I still have them uh, with me. I think the DVD actually goes for a pretty good price. The, I think it was the 20th anniversary DVD with all the special features and everything on it. I still have it. And um, I even liked the, the sequel that came out in 2010. A lot of people didn't like that one either. But And it was kind of weird because it was still in that early sort of, uh, you know, where they de-aged. Uh, Jeff Bridges for it mm -hmm. but in my mind it still kind of worked because you're in a digital realm and it's supposed to have that sort of surreal quality to it well I think specifically with the clue character in Tron Legacy the fact that he's essentially a CG copy of Jeff Bridges the look yeah. actually works and, and you could I, I was watching Tron Legacy as well and it's crazy the how far de-aging has coming because like you said that movie came out in 2010 10 years yeah. ago and we look at you know I'll, I'll use terminator dark fate as an example the fact that they de-aged linda hamilton and arnold the way they did it, it looked mm -hmm. near flawless yeah but it didn't really take me out of the movie because when you see like the young kevin flynn it's just like a very brief time it's yeah, just for little exactly. snippets, like at the very beginning of the movie, and then you have a couple of flashbacks. But I, I didn't think it looked all that bad. I just love the world of Tron. Like they've, they're, Tron Three has been in the works for a while now, and I really hope that it gets, you know, I hope it gets made because I don't know if you ever saw uh, Tron Uprising, the um, the cartoon. It's actually not. on Disney Plus now. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend it. It's very, very well done. It only lasted like one season, I think. But it had um, Elijah Wood did one of the voices in it. And uh, But yeah, go check that out on Disney+. Plus. It's really, really good. Kind of going back to the original Tron, I actually didn't see it until after I saw Tron Legacy. Because I saw Legacy in theaters the weekend it came out because the the concept of Tron had always intrigued me. But but I had heard very mixed things about the original movie, so I never really sat down and watched it. But I well, it's definitely a, a sort of a it, it's an it, I wouldn't say it's an acquired taste, but it's definitely a movie for people like us who love video games. I don't think that people who aren't into like computers and video games and things like that, I just don't think they really get it. Yeah, I I would agree with that. And, but I, I knew like the basis of what the story was about. Like I knew the very basic details of it going into Tron Legacy, and then I, I actually loved the Legacy movie. You know, I, the the effects were great. I thought using Daft Punk to do the score was the perfect marriage. Oh my god, still one of the best scores of all time. I actually have that score in my iTunes library. I li I still listen to it regularly. Mm hmm. Yeah, I got it on, because I went through a phase where I was collecting records, and I found the, the Legacy soundtrack on vinyl and got it. Oh, wow. I would love to have that on vinyl. Yeah, and it sounds really good, too. 
So transitioning back to the original movie, you said you know you watched it as a kid. What, what can you remember your initial thoughts of watching the movie for the first time? I, I was so young, I don't really remember the first time I watched it. It was one of those movies that, like, you know, my grandfather had HBO from like the late, like in the late seventies, early eighties, I think. So he would tape a bunch of movies for me. Like I had the original Star Wars trilogy on VHS. I had Tron. I had the anything that. I still love to this day, like the Goonies, uh, you know, I had, um, the black hole, Disney's the black hole on VHS. Like I had all these great movies on VHS that my grandfather would tape for me. And one of them was Tron. And I just remember, um, watching it all the time because I just loved it. I, the thing that got me the most was the light cycles. I wanted a light cycle so badly when I was a kid, (laughs) I still do as an adult, like if I had the chance to like, like that, that's something I don't understand why they haven't done in VR yet is a light cycle game. Like that's just tailor made for VR. Yeah. You would think, I know one cool thing that they're doing at Disney world is they're building a Tron roller coaster and you're going to be on a light cycle. Oh, that's awesome. As like, when that opens, I, I have to go do it. It's just going to be because I I remember reading when Legacy came out, they altered a section of Disneyland to look like the Tron world. And they even had Flynn's Arcade. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that that would be really cool. Like that. That was something I loved about the original Tron. And I know it's a very minor part of the movie, but I loved seeing the, the full arcade like with everyone at the different cabinets and you know, the Flynn character just kicking ass on, um, was it Space Paranoids? Yes. <laughs> and just, I, the, what's crazy is that I wanted one of those shirts that just said Flynn's on the back of it. I haven't gotten one yet. Oh, yeah. But there, there's just something about that simple, like, neon text that I love. It, it, but it's, the, the arcade It's scenes, very iconic, I think. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Because I, I remember when Legacy came out, people loving the the scene when Flynn's son goes into the arcade and turns it on, and all the machines you know come to life. The jukebox comes on and is playing Journey. It, it was just like a a time warp back to the eighties. Yeah, and also I, I wanted to mention if, if people listening to this like are as big of Tron fans as as we are. Uh, there, there was a game that came out on the original X back in 2003, 2004, and it's called Tron 2.0, and it has a really good. Uh, it's sort of like like Halo, like that first person shooter Halo um, vibe to it, and it had um, light cycle races on it too. So oh, that's cool, and it's actually it's available on Steam now. And um, I haven't picked it up yet, but I'm very tempted to pick it up because I used to have it for the original Xbox. But uh, now I was looking it up and I found it. It says it's on Steam for $9.99. Now that you mention it, I remember hearing about that game. And I I never played it because I remember just thinking, oh, that's just based off the old Disney movie. Yeah. Because in a way, it's still kind of like one of those Disney movies that that nobody ever talks about. And the the crazy thing is, and another thing that I was reading about, is that a lot of Disney animators didn't want to work on the movie because they thought that computers would put them out of business. Yeah. But I mean, you, you look, you know, all these years later, how essential computers are. Yeah, so, I know. I mean, without Tron, we pr- probably would have never had, we never would have had Pixar. Yeah, you're you're probably right. Well, and the the crazy thing is, is in a way, it was kind of telling the future uh, of humanity because of how dependent we are on computers. On you know, and that they weren't nearly you know close to being invented at the time, but cell phones and how dependent we are with technology. You kind of get a little bit of a glimpse of that in the original Tron movie. Yeah, well, that's the cool thing, like. The whole plot of Legacy was Clue trying to, because basically the Tron universe is a closed system. Mm-hmm. It's it it doesn't exist 
outside of, you know, Flynn's arcade or whatever. So the whole plot of the movie was Clue trying to um, basically get out through the Internet. So that would be an interesting story to, to go into for Tron 3 if, you know, people could actually go into what the what the Internet would look like from, you know, the Tron world point of view. Well, and also there's I remember seeing some deleted scenes on the legacy DVD that in a way sets up a third film and they, they leave yeah. it open at the end of the second movie. But there's a scene early on in legacy that has um, Dillinger's son Dillinger in the original movie was played by David Warner. His yeah. son is a huge part of of income. But there's a, a scene on the Blu-ray that's dillinger's son and dillinger talking with each other it could be like they could be a part of a third movie i mean i think that would be kind of a cool callback to the original if they did that yeah and another thing does david warner age at all no he'll outlive all of us (laughs) i was um watching um in the mouth of madness last night which is a really good john carpenter movie from 1996 and Tron was made in 81. He looks exactly the same in in the Mouth of Madness that he did in Tron. And then I look up a picture of him on IMDb, and he still doesn't look any older. Like, he still looks the same age as he did back in Tron. That was 40 years ago. Like, is this dude a vampire? <laughs> I'm convinced two people that are going to outlive everyone on this earth, David Warner and Ric Flair. Yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, another cool thing about the uh, the original movie, it says here and on Keith the... Richards too. Sorry, I, I was just thinking. I was like, yeah, Keith Richards is going to be the, the just going to be the three of those guys sitting around at the end of time. In all seriousness, I could see Keith Richards living to be because how old is he now, or how old do you think oh, he's got to be now? He's got to be in his mid seventies at least. I'm going to predict he lives to be 115. Oh, easily. And he just quit smoking. Like Yeah, so he's absolutely he's absolutely going to live until then. <laughs> I was like, oh, now he's going to live forever. Something else that I, I wanted to bring up here. On the DVD commentary, it says there's almost no camera movement. And, and I'm thinking about this you know, from having a fresh perspective on the movie. There's almost no camera movement whatsoever in any of the shots of the electronic world with the live-action characters. And I, I imagine it's probably because the effects were so delicate at the time yeah. that they couldn't deal with a lot of, you know, constant moving around. Well, not only that, but the way the movie was shot, you know, they had those, if you look at their costumes, like in the light, they look so stupid, Yeah. <laughs> but you look at them with it. Cause it was made with that reflective material. So the only way that really works is, you know, they have to be, the light has to be at a certain angle the you know the camera has to be in a certain spot to be able to catch the the light off of that material so i can see why there was really no camera movement cuz once you kind of get the lighting and the camera in spot in the spot it needs to be then you really don't have you know you don't have much movement there yeah i mean it doesn't really take away from the movie in my opinion because there aren't a lot of complex camera movements anyway when it comes to yeah. movies from that era and it, going off of that, cause you, you grew up with the, these type of movies. So you could probably have a better answer than I do. Cause I was actually chatting about this with Cindy Morgan. Why do you think movies from like the late seventies to mid eighties, like Tron, Caddyshack, uh, I'd throw in Ferris Bueller, back to the future, Ghostbusters. All those movies have that very unique charm that no other movie from any other era has, in my opinion. Why do you think that's the case? I think people were allowed to, I think movie companies at the time were allowed to be a little more experimental because even at the time that Ghostbusters was being made, that was around the time that big companies like Coca-Cola, Pepsi, those kind of companies were starting to buy up movie companies. So you don't have the original system in place for the studios where the studios were owned by like one guy or like a couple of people 
making the decision. So there was no kind of committee that you had to go through. You just basically, you know, you're, you pitched the movie to your representative and the representative would go to the head of the movie studio and they would either red light it or green light it. And then you went off and made your movie. And of course you probably got a few notes here and there from executives, but at, you know, you don't have that huge corporate overlord that are penny pinching everything and have to have a say so and everything. So I think movies were allowed to, to breathe a little bit more and be a little more experimental. I don't think you're going to get that anymore. I mean, you, you do with, I think smaller companies like Bloomhouse is kind of doing that, but at the same time, they're also penny pinching as well. So yeah, uh, their directors have to be a little more creative with some of the effects and stuff that they want to do. But I think that's where the charm of those movies come in as well. I think when you, when you're given free reign and you don't have as much money as you would, if you were kowtowing to, to corporate overlords, I think things just tend to come out a little better and a little more timeless. Well, and you, you think of these stories, and it's, it's it's tough to say what's true or not true because there's so much fake news and fake articles that are out there. So it's tough to differentiate fact from fiction. But you hear these stories about you know current movies, like the Star Wars movies, for example. They seem to be very micromanaged. Yeah. You know, especially with these newer movies. And then even with the MCU, looking at... You know, the Kevin Feige's plan from Iron Man to Avengers Endgame didn't really change all that much yeah. from what the initial concept. So it's, it's in a way it's like, how much freedom do you really have to make but something at, in that universe? But look at what happens when someone does get a little bit of freedom to do what they want to do. Like you look at John Favreau and The Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. That was pretty much a singular vision that he had and he was pretty much left alone to do it. And when they tried to come in and tell him what to do, he was like, no, I'm going to do it this way. And he's got the power to do that. So that's, I think that's why we love the Mandalorian so much is because it's not, it's not a movie or a TV show made by committee. Well, and it's not tied down to anything either. You know, like yeah. the Mandalorian is very much, the reason why I like it, or one of the big reasons why I like it, is that it's this small, intimate story that you know it takes place in this huge universe with other characters and other things going on, but you're only concerned about a guy in Mandalorian armor and little baby Yoda. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah, and you look back at the movies like uh, that have stood the test of time, like The Goonies and Ghostbusters and Tron, like... Those movies in that era, they weren't trying to make a movie to be a franchise. Like, they didn't have franchises in mind. They just had this one story that they wanted to tell. And if it worked, great. If not, no harm, no foul. But I, I think most movies that are made now are made in, with franchises in mind. And I don't think you can really do that. Just tell a nice, tight, concise story. Mm -hmm. And see what happens and and go from there. But don't go into it thinking, oh, this is going to make a great franchise. Just tell a, a good, concise story that has a nice, tight ending on it. And if you can add on to it, then great. Yeah, that seems to be a big problem with movies today is everything. I think the MCU kind of set an unfair precedent when it comes yeah. to modern movies that everyone wants the next big franchise. But that's also that's the world that those movies come from, though, as well, like the comic book world, like the comic books are built on on serializing these stories and, and continuing these stories and keeping them going for, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. I mean, they've been telling the same stories over and over again. And that's what they do. That's that's the comic book world that that's a. I feel like those movies are set apart from anything else because that's what they're supposed to be, like serialized stories. True. No, that, that's that's a good point. But like you said, it's also set an unfair precedent because those movies like that, of course, the Star Wars movies kind of 
started this as well. Like everybody wants a franchise and not everything needs to be a franchise. No, there have been some, some of the greatest movies of all time are, are one and done movies. Yeah. But that, that's the great thing about movies is that, you know, I, I don't go into every movie thinking, oh, I'd love to see, you know, what happens or like I have to see what happens afterwards. Because part of the fun discussion is after you watch a movie, sitting around with your friends and th- and thinking, oh, I'd love to see, you know, what happens, you know, oh, after yeah. that. But at the same time, it's like you don't necessarily have to. Like one of my favorite directors of all time is John Carpenter. And you look at John Carpenter movies like they live and in the mouth of madness and big trouble uh, in little thing. china yeah big trouble in little china like those are great one-off movies that there's something to be said for leave them wanting more and i think that's what works in those movies favor is like we never got a sequel to they live that didn't live up to the original and kind of tarnished it you know we never got a big trouble in little china sequel that tarnished the original these are great cult hit movies that are just really good one-offs well i think that's why i was surprised that legacy came out you know many years later after the original tron movie because my thought was why are you going back now and revisiting it but i i i think legacy is a bit of an exception to that rule because i actually loved what they did with it yeah it had a cool story and it it kind of makes sense to you know, have Flynn's Flynn disappears to go back into that world and his son has to find out what happens to him and he gets go sucked into that world and tries to find a way out. Like it works on that level. And that's why I don't understand why it didn't really catch on and, and kind of failed. It just it's such a good story and such good movies. I I don't know. I guess I don't know, I guess people just aren't into it. They think it's too weird or something. I don't, it might be a little too out there for some people. I mean, I, I don't I don't think it is personally because I, I've watched movies that are way more outlandish than Tron. Yeah. Let's, let's be honest. <laughs> so as we start to wrap up here, what to you is the legacy of of the original Tron? We'll we'll leave legacy out of the conversation, but if we're talking strictly about the original Tron film, what do you think is the legacy of that movie these years later? Oh, definitely CGI as far as movies go. I mean, it was the first movie that really had CGI in it. And that just blows my mind that they were doing that with those computers at that time. Because, you know, they were building this world that they couldn't even see what they were doing. They were basically building it in code. Mm -hmm. And the cool camera tricks that they had to do, the story. And I think it's honestly, I think it's one of the more probably the most creative movie that the Disney company has ever done. Like as far as um, taking a a strange concept and just going with it and allowing it to be made, even though, like I said, it failed miserably at the box office, but I think it inspired so many people afterwards. Like it's just one of those great cult classic movies. And I think if you talk to, a lot of people that are in the movie industry, like especially, you know, computer animators and stuff, I guarantee you that that movie was one of their original inspirations to go into that field. I think it's going to be one of those movies that will never quite get the credit that it deserves. No, I, I don't think so. But I think with among the people that do love it, like we will always like fly the Tron flag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even though most people don't get it, it's just I I personally love it. It's probably in my top, I'd say top twenty greatest movies of all time. It's definitely up up there in in that list. Well, and, and you know, thinking back to some of the cool visuals in that movie, and, and I'm glad that I got to watch it remastered on Disney Plus because you know it, it was obviously cleaned up a bit. But yeah. it's it still effects wise still holds up fairly well. And I, I think of the, the scene when Flynn jumps into the master control um, program and you see the silhouette like after Tron throws his disc yeah. in, the, in the heart of the program. You see Flynn, you know, shoot up as almost this like Messiah type character. Like I've saved you know the entire grid 
Mm-hmm. It, it looked really, really cool, like very 80s ish, but in a good way. Yeah, exactly. Like it's not cheesy looking. No, no, not at all. And I, I the, the cast, I thought, you know, was was actually pretty good. And you got Jeff oh, yeah. Bridges, you've got David Warner, Cindy Morgan. You know, you've got you got some Bruce good Fox actors. Lightner. Yeah, br- yeah, who who will also be at Pensacon this upcoming week. In closing, I guess we should go through uh, what all we're going to be doing at Pensacon this weekend. I'll, I'll list off the panels that you and I are doing together because oh, yeah. it, let me, it's. Let me pull up the list here. <laughs> yeah, because we we've got um, we've got quite a few. So I know um, Saturday you'll be doing the Stephen King film and TV adaptations panel uh-huh. that will be at five fifteen that I'll be moderating, and then right after that. And I cannot wait to do this panel again. Defending Bad Movies 2 will be at 6.30 p.m. at the Grand Hotel Room B. If you guys don't know what Defending Bad Movies is, search Defending Bad Movies on the Derek Diamond Experience. It's in the archives, and that'll give you an idea of what it's like. We're actually going to have a, a big panel for for Bad Movies this year, because it's going to be you. I can't wait. It's going to be you, Wally, uh, Nathan Simmons and a friend of the podcast and Nerd Cave Retro, Brandon Rutledge, will be on as well. So it's it's going to be an absolute blast. But then also we have um, sat, uh, Sunday morning, also at the Grand Hotel Room. We're pretty much going to be living in that room the entire weekend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll be doing a Nerd Cave Retro panel at 11 a.m. where we'll be talking about the Mario Brothers series. So mm-hmm. a lot of cool stuff going on for Pensacon. Yeah, and also I'm going to be doing uh on Saturday at 1:30 in uh the Grand Hotel Room B. I'll be doing what should what should be canon in Star Wars and also the uh the Star Wars sequel trilogy will be Sunday at 4 to, 4 p.m. to 4:45 and and also the Grand B Hotel Room. Yep. No, it's going to be a lot of fun and Pensacon is this upcoming weekend, February 28th through March 1st, all over downtown Pensacola, pretty much the entire downtown area turns into Pensacon. It's a really cool thing, and I cannot wait. Uh, if you and, haven't gotten your tickets, go get them now. You ain't got much time left. But uh, in closing, do you want to plug our podcast so people Absolutely. who listen to the experience can go check it out? Yeah, go check me and Derek out over at the Nerd Cave at nerdcaveretro.com and also on Twitter at nerdcaveretro and also on Facebook at facebook.com slash nerdcaveretro where every week we talk about retro game uh, news, history, uh, and we every week each of us we do a review of a retro game uh, from the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Fantastic. Well, Jason, thank you for taking the time to talk Tron and look forward to seeing you this weekend. Thank you very much. Glad to uh, talk about Tron with somebody else who appreciates it. (laughs) Happy to be joined with my very special guest this week. You know her as Lacey Underall from Caddyshack and Yori from Tron and upcoming Pensacon guest, Cindy Morgan. How are you today? Hi, good. Good to good to be talking to you again. Absolutely. No, we were actually just talking um, off air, but a little trivia fact, a little uh, Derek Diamond Experience trivia fact. So <laughs> I used to do this show uh, back in the like 2013 to 2017 called the Nerd Cave Podcast. And the first convention that we ever went to was here in Pensacola. And the first celebrity I ever interviewed was you. So it's a cool little uh, cool little reunion. That's pretty cool. I don't remember you as well as I remember the guy who dressed up his squirrel and had it on his head, and somebody came in with a duck. Well, I can (laughs) understand that being a little bit more memorable. (laughs) It just wasn't stuck in my... I mean, the the, the squirrel had clothes. Oh, good. uh, (laughs) Good. It was dressed up like its owner, so yeah, that sort of stuck in my head, but good to be speaking to you again. Yes, the Nerd Cave, I remember that name. Oh, awesome, yeah. Yeah, no, we, we did that show for, I think it ended in 2018, but it was a it was a really fun time. But Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to get started a little bit about uh, your backstory. So where are you originally from, and what was it that made you want to get into the crazy world of filmmaking? 
<laughs> I was born in Chicago and uh, went to Northern Illinois University with a, a degree in communications, with, which is worthless without a job. And luckily I got one and I was in broadcasting for about five years, uh, like almost every end of it. I, I, uh, I started out in radio and I ended up doing the weather like the worst weather person on earth. I was really, really awful. I think people tuned in just to see what the heck I'd say. I'd switch the oceans, just really awful. But, you know, I, I got it. I just my, my theory was just to keep talking. And it seemed to work. And uh, then I ended up doing radio in Chicago, Morning Drive, and making very little money. A good company, uh, uh, but uh, very, very little money. And uh, eventually I stopped doing that and did some commercials. And I was up, up against the wall because people in Chicago were saying, you're just the voice we know. We can't put you on camera. I'm like, heck with you guys. I'm going to L.A. And uh, I figured I'd do some commercials. And I did. You know, like as soon as I got out of my car, I had an Irish Spring commercial. You know, manly, mm-hmm. yes, but I like it too, which was kind of hysterical. My father liked Irish Spring, so I guess that's okay. But <laughs> um, eight months later, um, I was doing Caddyshack. So Caddyshack was your first film that you had ever yeah. done? Yeah. That's insane. Because you, you think of the, the cult classic that it is now. I and know. It, it, you, you just jump right in. and like, did So how did you get the part? On Caddyshack, I auditioned. Uh, I, I read with the with the casting director, and 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 uh, I guess it went well. And then uh, I think I had maybe two more readings, and uh, I think there was one more reading. And honestly, when I read the script, I went, "I'll, I'll never get cast for this." You know, twelve years of Catholic school, four years of Catholic girls' school. You know, at some college, you, you know, really didn't prepare me for this. But yeah. What the heck? I can read on this and do whatever I want because they'll never cast me. Well, they did, you know, and then it was a question of, well, okay, let's just see how this goes and um, got to the set. And uh, I think, you know, the legends are all true and much, much more, <laughs> you know, it was like the biggest party I ever went to, the longest party I ever went to, but um, it was a lot of fun. It was an incredible experience. Uh, and what was wonderful was you're we kind of locked up on the set with four of the funniest men on the planet, not counting Harold Ramis, who was just brilliant. He really was Lacey Underall. He would whisper stuff in my ear and say, do this. I'd go, why? He'd go, just do it, just do it. You know, and later on, I, you know, I, I figured it out. But, you know, just up against these four really strong, very different comedic actors. Uh, two were great in improv, Chevy and Bill Murray. You know, just great improvisational actors. You had to really pay attention to follow these guys. And Rodney was just saying whatever the hell he wanted, because <laughs> he, you know, because he would just roll in, and he he partied more than any of us. He had a better time, I believe. And uh, Ted, well, Ted was trying to do the lines. He was hanging onto the script for dear life, and by the end of the film, he was legitimately angry with every single person there. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he, we all, in a way, kind of evolved into versions of our characters. So it was it was kind of fun. Well, that was actually going to be my follow-up question is what was the time on set like? Because you think of just the the who's who of this film with Chevy Chase, oh, yeah. Rodney Dangerfield, Bill Murray. Right. Yeah. It, it's Like I said, it's a cult classic. You know, and so many people love this movie and have loved it since since it was released. Yeah. It, it's just insane to think, you know, like all these years later that it still has the cultural impact that, that it still has. It's crazy. Uh, you know, when it was released, it, it kind of didn't do so well. I also saw some of the interviews from the press junket and I can I can see, you know, it didn't some of the inter- you know, you have to catch these guys right to do a great interview and just like throwing them in there early in the morning and having them interviewed by a woman who. Well, did the one I interviewed I saw was cut. Really didn't understand what Caddyshack was about, and these guys were not in any mood to explain it. So, you know, some of the interviews were interesting. So, uh, that was that. But uh, I'll tell you, over time, you know what I think the secret is? We were really having a good time. We weren't faking it. We were having the best time ever, uh, most of the time. And um, we, you can't fake that. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's become like a song on the radio. People come up and they say, yeah, whenever it's on, I just put it on wherever it is, and I just watch it. And for me, it's different. It's like watching home movies of your crazy relatives. I mean, I was there. So it's like, yeah, I, I remember that. I remember that. But um, but it's 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 so nice to be a part of something like that. I'm sure it has to spark so many fond memories. Like you said, it's kind of like watching oh, yeah. home movies. You think of a certain scene, and you're like, oh, there. I'm sure there's a funny story, you know, oh, behind yeah, that absolutely. and everything. I was walking past the clubhouse, and it, it got to the point pretty much where the script 
meant nothing. You know, it just really did. Or what the, the, the shots the next day really didn't affect anything. So you would just get up, roll through hair, makeup and wardrobe and go out there, you know, and see what was going on. And, you know, uh, and I was walking by the clubhouse and Harold said, come over here and watch this. And I said, OK. And I'm looking and this is about God, it's about it's far enough so I can't hear what the actor's saying. But I'm looking going, what the hell is he doing? I'll never be able to, you know, match that shot. And here's an actor taking the golf club and whacking at the flowers and whacking at the flowers. And I, you can't talk, but I wanted to say, Harold, you're going to have to replant all those moms. What are you doing? It was Bill doing his scene with the moms where he's whacking at him, pretending he's um, winning, winning the golf tournament. He's, mm-hmm. he's what, what, what was it? Was it, do you remember? Listen, people would remember it because they know every line in the film, but Bill was pretending he's in this golf tournament, winning it. And uh, just, basically riffing he's 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 improvising the whole thing mm-hmm. it was amazing insane. yeah yeah well that's that's how good he was now it's funny because you you go back and think of the classic films of that era and i, I sit there and watch them and i'm thinking i would love to have just been on set for a day <laughs> just one day well yeah, you, you had to really pay attention to be on set for one day. I mean, to, to work in any one of those things, you had to have your wits about you on every level, because things were happening like at lightning speed. People were doing things that weren't in the film. You had to pay attention and know where the camera was the whole time. And that was, it took a while to, for me to get it. Um, but I remember the the script supervisor used to ke- kept running up and saying, "But you did this before," and I went, "Yeah, but we're improvising." No, no, we got to match the shot. I learned that on the job. <laughs> how to how to match a shot so uh it, it it was it was just the greatest experience in the world but it was uh I'm trying to explain it you know I'm, and i'm looking going through in my head phrases and i'm like no that's politically incorrect that's politically incorrect <laughs> <laughs> so, you know so um let me just say it was it was an experience that that just took everything out of me but i'm so glad i was a part of it you know i remember seeing animal house like a year before mm-hmm. we shot it and i remember thinking god this is a whole new kind of humor this is like a whole different way to go. I've never seen anything like this. And a year later, I was filming with the same guys. I didn't really know that because when I when I get a job, I will stop watching whatever actor is in it, you know, because I, I don't want to be um, uh, think, think too much of it or be, you know, intimidated. I just want to go in there and do my job. And and, and then later on, I'll see what they've done. So um, uh, I, I remember one point we were watching. They had SNL Saturday Night Live on and we were watching it while we were on the set. You know, then I would watch it with everybody else. But um, legendary parties, I think you know about that. I, I've I've heard some stories and read some <laughs> yeah. stories online. Yeah, well, it's, it, they, I don't think they could tell you how how much was going. It, it was it was it was really astonishing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and thank God I was you know in my twenties because I was able to you know get through this alive. A, a it was it was it was quite an experience. It it, it was. Um, as much was going on, I mean, really, they should have followed us around with a camera. Oh, they kind of did at one point. They started, you know, just filming what was happening mm-hmm. because Rodney would roll through a scene and just say whatever. And Ted's trying to follow him going, you know, wait, I got lines here, you know, and he had no intentions of being Rodney's straight man. But a lot of times he was. Yeah, they just kind of worked out that way. And then yeah, the parting was pretty much every night. <laughs> I, I'm I have. I can only imagine with the names that, you know, I'm looking at the, the cast list right now and it's right. It, it's, I can imagine it had to have been legendary. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, 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 and that was, a, that was kind of an eye opener and quite a learning experience. And after being five years in broadcasting where you have federal communications laws and rules to follow, you know, I went in, okay, we're going to have the best scripts, the greatest, every, and, and, and it was like a free for all and pandemonium. And you, it like, Okay, new rules. You know, forget the script. Let's just pay attention to what's going on in front of me. And and uh, yeah, and the parties kind of overlapped the filming, which was, you know, it, it it got to the point where you just okay, what are we doing now? And that's that's pretty much what I looked at. Well, I can imagine that there couldn't have been much better on the job training because you're you're on Hell this no. you're <laughs> you're with this group that is essentially throwing everything out the window or most things yeah. out the window. But I yeah. can imagine it, it prepares you for future projects like no other. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you you had to, um, you know, there were some simple things like how to match a shot. I got that like in the first week, you know, when the mm-hmm. script supervisor kept saying, well, you were over here when you did that. You were over there. I'm like, yeah, what's the difference? No, you got to do it the same for camera. And that was, that was the little things. And the big thing was, you know, occasionally you'd get into a scene where somebody was improvising like crazy and um, 
thank God I had a good improvisation coach before I left Los Angeles. Thank God this guy sat at me, yelled at me. He's a, he was an actor um, named Harvey Lembeck. His son, Michael, became a director. And uh, this guy would yell, you know, Morgan, Morgan, you're the straight. Stop going for the joke. Because I was a disc jockey, so I'm used to doing all the talking. And uh, this guy would say, stop going for the joke. You're the straight. You set it up. And he taught me to do what nobody else in my life was ever able to teach me to do, how to listen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and it, for example, the scenes with Chevy where he was improvising, uh, sometimes we weren't getting along. And he was doing whatever he could to – felt like he was trying to blow me out of the scene. And I wasn't going anywhere. You don't pick a fight with a stubborn Pollock from Chicago and expect to come out of it, okay? <laughs> you know, I'm, I wasn't going anywhere. So, And that's what made a great dynamic because um, – the give and take in a scene, you know, it, it really mattered. Um, for example, that piano scene was 100% improvised, did not know we were even filming until the middle of the scene. And I looked up and I saw the camera light on and I kind of laughed to myself in the middle of the scene. And, and that's, that's the only time people go, did you laugh? No, you don't laugh during the scene. But when I'm doing something with Chevy and I'm looking at, I'm like, he's nuts. And I see the damn camera light on. I go, Oh, I get it. You're filming this. Terrific. That's insane. Yeah. It's absolutely it, it, insane. One of the nicest things I've heard is a lot of um, a lot of people like first responders or a lot of people in the military like it because it's the kind of thing you can watch where it goes back to a time before 9-11, before the wars, before AIDS, before hamper-proof caps on Tylenol. It goes back to a little age of innocence where you could have a good time and just let loose and have a free-for-all. Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 it's like a song on the radio. You just want to hear it again. Yep. No, absolutely. Now, from Caddyshack, a couple of years later, uh, Tron was released, uh-huh. which was pretty re- revolutionary at the time. Yes. And, I, and I didn't see Tron until, you know, years and years later. I mean, this was, you know, I was born in 86. This was came out in 82. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So I, you would have been ready to see it until, you know, you know, the 90s, probably. Mm-hmm. I actually saw the um, I had heard of Tron, but had never watched it until after the sequel came out okay yeah that that happened with a lot of people Mm -hmm. and then after watching tron legacy i went back and watched the original one and the the effects especially were kind of mind-blowing especially when you think of the time period that it was made what they had to work with exactly exactly yeah so what was it like you know being on set for doing things that essentially on camera had never really been done before as far as visuals go Oh, no, n- never been done. It was the exact opposite of, of Caddyshack, um, like where everything was a free-for-all and there was partying. This was lockdown tight on, on a soundstage at Disney Studio. The sound, it's like, a, you know, you, if you see the soundstage, they're like a giant warehouse, except this one was completely empty, painted black, zero lights. And the only lights were where you were standing and where you were doing. And you had to go from here to there, hit a mark that you couldn't look at. You had a, you had a, I had to take running steps backwards into a shot and, uh, you know, and I would look at the script and I go, this doesn't make a goddamn bit of sense. What are they asking me to do? I don't get it. And, and, you know, I would just go and go in and I'd find the reality usually in the other actor's eyes. But at some point, you know, one day I came in and, and Steven Lisberger says, okay, uh, you guys, you're, you're on the solar sailor, you're crossing the game sea, uh, Cindy, you're flying the ship go. And so I said, Okay, I got to ask, what the hell are you talking about? There's nothing here. It's all black. There's nothing, zero. There's like a little riser. You know, if you've done those panels, you know, there's a little riser that people are on. And on top of that riser was basically a banquet table covered in black felt. So exactly what do you have in mind? And, and I think at that point he showed me some of the graphics, which gave me some idea of what was going on. And uh, and I'm like, okay, I'm flying the ship. Exactly what did you have in mind when <laughs> there sits as a blank table with a black piece of felt on it. What, what, what do you have in mind? He says, just, just do anything. The artist will fill it in. So in my mind, I, I saw a soundboard because I was a sound engineer when I was in broadcasting. I mm-hmm. saw a soundboard and that's the thing I was using to make the ship move forward. You look at, you know, cause I, I watched Tron again the other night and just seeing what was done. I can't imagine because we have so many good benefits of technology when it comes to filmmaking now that oh, yeah. thinking of how it was done back then is almost foreign completely, but you had to work with what you had and at times exactly. develop new technologies. So I, I, I think I it, it gives to me an even bigger appreciation 
for films that were made during that time frame because of what they had to do to, to make it happen. It was it was amazing. It was astonishing. And they brought in brilliant people to work. I mean, the, the, the cinematographer, the art director, I mean, every department was just off the charts. Amazing. Um, you know, Sid Mead designed a lot of the background. Uh, you know that there were several layers they had. They were shooting on uh, they were printed on codalis and mm-hmm. uh, which are. Have you seen the size of a codalith? It's like a. Um, I'm trying to, about 18 inches by 12 inches. I'm trying to think of it. You'd have to look it up. But they're huge pieces of film mm-hmm. that they were shooting on. And they would layer these pieces of film because they would layer the graphics with what really happened and uh, hand painting things. I mean, each one of those pieces was hand painted and layered, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes stacks of it. The fact that, and when you see it on a big screen, it holds up vividly, beautifully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I love behind the scenes featurettes of films seeing you know how what the process that went into making the film happen and this one especially because of you know things like that of coloring the film and giving it that very distinct look like tron and tron legacy look very different but yes but uh different animals almost yeah yeah well i mean plus with the time periods that they were made technology is just completely different but but there's something but there's something about the original that makes it stand out like legacy has that kind of like a dark sleek looking type mm-hmm. of, of feel to it with the with the lights and everything but tron one has that it also has that 80s charm to it and there's well it has a charm it has an innocence it has a um it has a lot of heart too you know even those scripts sometimes i, I didn't agree with um it it holds up uh because that innocence against the special brand new special effects just worked in it and it, it, it's it's amazing that it was so different when you think about how great the effects were and everything but a film to me always the story and the characters are the core and what drives well, yeah. the film and, and but, but tron yeah. still does that mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah and it was great to do it was it was it was i i mean i still don't believe that those two very different films that were just so unbelievable i mean if i would have thought about it ahead of time i would have been i wouldn't have known what to tell you what was going to happen i couldn't have imagined i couldn't have predicted it and the fact that they both held up over time and and that they're both doing so well it just speaks to all the wonderful people who are involved and really really worked hard on it and put everything into it and you can't phone this in and you can't when i did the first press junket people were saying me because it was hard to explain in brand new markets because i go from city to city to try to explain what this was like and i finally said okay okay did you ever you remember the wizard of oz how dorothy was in this black and white world mm-hmm. and then something happened and she was blown into this wonderful world of vivid color and all the people she kind of knew in the other world were in this world well it's a lot like that mhm because that was the only thing that people could relate to. And then they'd say, well, aren't you worried you'd be replaced by computers? I said, no, I can do something computers can't. And they said, what? I said, I can make mistakes. And therein lies your film right there. It's in those little nuances, those little mistakes, those little human elements that makes a film. Well, I think Caddyshack and Tron especially, they come from... I've always been drawn, you know, as long as I can remember being a fan of movies... There's mm-hmm. something about the 80s era of film that stands out like no other with Caddyshack, <laughs> Tron, and, and even other movies like The Breakfast Club. I can't describe it because I was in it. You tell me. Well, no, they, they just have that very unique type of charm that to me no mm-hmm. other era of films have. Because mm-hmm. you know, I've gone back and I've watched movies from the 70s, from the 60s, right. even older, and even current movies now. The 80s movies to me... of that era have always stood Mm -hmm. out to me and it's because of the unique charm that the actors bring through the characters to the screen there was a lot of human element there it was less about um 70s i think was a lot much more serious time and the 80s it was like all bets are off just Mm -hmm. go in there and what you're going to do and uh i don't know It, it was it was pretty good i mean i was rarely directed usually i would come in and i would the way i work is i would you know a lot of people like to rehearse 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 to me that's that would just choke the love out of i see it in my head i can see i don't memorize lines i memorize ideas and sequence i can see the whole scene i get in the morning i see what my marks are okay i got it and um once in a while the director will say well what about the harold directed me he was lacy so he'd give me ideas and i worked with uh 
uh, Urban Kirshner uh, on uh, uh, Amazing Stories, and he gave me some ideas, but uh, not too often. Usually you go in and you're, you're kind of prepared. You mm-hmm. know the scene. Yeah. Or else. You know? <laughs> so um, as we start to wrap up here, I did want to ask, so we mentioned both Caddyshack and Trime. Do you mm-hmm. have a certain like onset story or ones that you could tell on the podcast that Ah. that really stand out to you as far as like being above any other, like your, your favorite onset stories from either film. I'm trying to think in Tron, it would have to be running through uh, Shiva lab. Do you, they let us into an actual lab in, in Northern, Northern California. And I mean, this was this huge, um, I, I, you know, to be specific, you'd have to look it up, but uh, it, 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 they had lasers that were actually real. And we were in this lab and uh, running through here. And, and I, I remember stepping out of the lab and I'm thinking, oh, well, I'm just it's just another day of work. And, and I'm looking, OK, I'm standing here. There's the makeup trailer. I got to get touched up. And I saw this little tape around an area that was about a foot tall. And you're just like, yeah, I can cut across this shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So I just start walking. And all of a sudden they went, stop. And I'm like, huh? And all these guys came out of nowhere in like these white coats and stuff. And they, they were just like, don't move, don't move. Okay, we're going to need your shoes. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> this was such a lockdown government facility that if you, whatever was in that area, they needed my shoes for. <laughs> I got them back later. I got doubles back later. Oh, but, that's good. Uh, so, so, and Bruce Logan, who was a cinematographer, I mean, he's great. He's well known. He blew up the Death Star, for Christ's sake. But, um, he wasn't allowed to even go to the bathroom by himself because he wasn't a U.S. citizen. So, oh wow, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, he he had people following him into. So it was a government facility, and we were in there. And with the Disney name, we got we got in there, and it got done. But uh, that was pretty amazing. And uh, Caddyshack, well, the love scene between Chevy and I, the oil massage scene, we were fighting. <laughs> really, we were not speaking to each other, and. Uh, I wouldn't have, well, you know, he said a couple things. I said a couple things. He walked and Harold Ramis said, apologize. I said, no, you heard what he said. <laughs> so Harold Ramis is cam counselor trying to get us back on the set at the same time at the same place. And Chevy comes in and goes, okay, I'm going to shoot two masters. And, uh, and uh, in the middle of it, you can see him and he starts at living his butt off. And, and, and you can see my eyes, and I'm, I'm, I'm just taking it all in, and, and he dumps that bottle of oil on my back. Not a mistake, because mm-hmm. after that's done, you can't reset the scene. Right. It would take an hour or more, and they didn't have that. So that was like saying, I've, I've shot all I'm going to shoot. And I'm like, all right, Buster, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Go ahead. And, um, and, uh, that, and honestly, I, that scene turned out to be one of the best we did because love and hate are closer than you think. And, and it really wasn't either, but, but, uh, having to go up against somebody like that, who's improvising. I just, I'm picturing Harold Ramos playing mediator between you two. And it, it, it sounds like a a funny film all in itself. Yeah, I mean, Harold, Harold was the only one, because he was driving the bus. He was the only one who wasn't partying like crazy. And uh, probably until the last day, I heard they had to carry him back to his room, but who knows? Oh, no. But, 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 but well, he was exhausted. I mean, he, you know, we were, we were going day and night. I mean, oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. It would start early in the morning, shoot all day. And then at nighttime, they're looking through the footage. They, they had an editing room right in the hotel where we were staying. And, um, you know, he's looking at the dailies to see if everything matches because then there were there wasn't any video playback. Mm-hmm. So you had to do it by eye and by guess. And uh, and, and that's a hard way of, you know, measuring or, or, or balancing out. But Harold was really, really brilliant at it. He just really got it. He held it all together and um, held us together. In fact, that after that scene, that was the only time Chevy and I, in fact, they had a double room that they had for screenings and I came in one and Chevy was on the other. I didn't even know he was coming. And we, I slipped into dailies to sit. I'm like, Oh my God, how, <laughs> how badly did this go? But they, there was a wonderful editor, Bill Carruth, who's still a friend of mine. Uh, he teaches at Florida state university, which is oh, cool. right near Pensacon. And uh, he's the editor of Kadishak. He's a, he's a professor in residence up there. And uh, he, he was just really, a dar- he was a third generation film editor. He was working for his father, handing him those little uh, trims of film during Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And That's crazy. 
his mom was one of the people who used to do the water ballets in the old 40s movies. Mm-hmm. And who do you think choreographed the water ballet? I'll give you, I'll bet you anything it was Bill. Because he, he was a little kid watching his mom mm-hmm. doing this. And we had a water ballet in that film. It's crazy how that all works out. It worked out beautifully. And yeah. I'm so happy to be No, I I can I can only imagine. Well, you you mentioned Pensacon. So we actually have Pensacon coming up. It's February 28th through March 1st. It's going to be mm-hmm. at the Pensacola Bay Center in downtown Pensacola. And I, I, I know it's your your very first time coming to Pensacon. So it should be I a lot know, of fun. I'm so excited. This is going to be great. Now, Pensacon, we were talking a little bit before we started uh, doing the interview, but Pensacon has really grown uh, in the last six years, five or six years, because it was essentially just in the Bay Center and the hotel that's across the street. But uh-huh. they've it's grown so much that they actually use multiple venues that are, so cool. loca- are located around the area. And what's cool is uh, downtown specifically, they'll model um, the restaurants or bars after things in pop culture. So say like last year, we have this we have this bar at downtown called Perfect Plain Brewery. They uh-huh. they remodeled themselves to look like Middle Earth from Lord of the Rings for oh Pensacon Weekend. That's so that's great. And we have uh, a seafood restaurant that will do like a Harry Potter party. There's another that does a Star Wars. So it, the the whole wow. town really and and you'll see it when you get to the airport. It's rebranded from Pensacola International Airport to Intergalactic Airport. Get out of here! That is so cool. It's great. It's really. I'm, I'm, so I'm excited. I'm excited for you to see it. No, it's a really, really fun time. I'm looking forward to it. I'm so glad you told me all about it. It sounds like a great show. I'm guessing no livestock this time. There won't be any ducks or chipmunks dressed up in clothes, right? Uh, I can't promise that, but uh, <laughs> we'll we'll see. No, people do dress up. Like it's the seeing... people dress up. I'm looking forward to that. That's that's that, that's probably one of the best times ever. I mean, it's like it's like uh, Halloween for grownups or Disneyland for grownups. Well, people spend so much time and effort into building these costumes. Like, it, it's absolutely insane. Yeah. Oh, I know. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, some of them take so much effort and creativity and just and, – and, and it's just it's just astonishing. I'm watching that. That's, that's the best part of my day. It'll definitely be a very fun time. I'm looking forward to it. And what are you coming as? A moderator? Um, I'll have a a blazer on at some point whenever oh. I do panels. I actually I've never done cosplay before. Really? You, mm-hmm. I don't think I have to. <laughs> Just... Yeah, you're you're yourself. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I've done a lot of that, uh, but 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 so you're going to be a moderator dressed in a blazer. Well, you'll be running around the show. I got a feeling doing a few things. Yeah, and I'll I'll definitely stop by and, and say hello and everything. I'm Good. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Absolutely. Good. Well, thank you so very much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, last thing I want to ask you before we get out of here, do you have a website or social media you'd like to plug so the listeners can ju- follow you? Just going to plug that. I'm in the middle of redesigning CindyMorgan.com. And I got hacked really hard about six weeks ago and got some of my pages back. Uh, my, a couple of my Vero pages are got eaten up uh, in the middle of recovering that. But uh yeah, don't go around doing a movie like Tron and think you won't be hacked. <laughs> so, <laughs> or at least there'll be there'll be an attempt. But I've got VPNs and my own Wi-Fi, you know. And still, I'm learning all kinds of new new words. And uh, it's it was wonderful to be a part of Tron because now I'm starting to figure out what I was saying 40 years ago. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Cindy, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview, and look forward to meeting you at Pensacon. Thank you so much. I'll see you there. Thanks again to both Cindy Morgan and Jason Robbins for coming on the podcast this week. Hopefully you'll see all three of us at Pensacon. Pensacon is coming up this weekend, February 28th through March 1st at the Pensacola Bay Center and various other locations in downtown Pensacola. You heard during the conversation with me and Jason about some of the panels that we'll be doing, but I just wanted to go through the full itinerary of what I'll be doing for the entire weekend. So on Friday, February 28th, we're going to kick things off at the Rex Theater at 1.30 p.m. I'll be moderating the Catherine Sutherland Q&A, who you heard on the podcast last week. And then that evening at 5.15, 
at Pensacola Little Theater. I'll be moderating the Q&A of WWE Hall of Famer Diamond Dallas Page. This is going to be a fun panel for me because I've been a huge fan of DDP since I started watching wrestling in 1998. I've been doing his yoga program uh, really off and on for the last few years, but I really got serious about it back in September, and it's it's truly been a life changer. So I'm excited to chat with him about that and among many other things. On Saturday, February 29th, I'll be moderating the Stephen King Film and TV Adaptations panel at the Pensacola Grand Hotel Room B. That's going to be at 5.15 p.m. I'll be moderating, and Jason Robbins will be sitting on the panel as well. And then right after that, Defending Bad Movies to The Revenge. You heard Defending Bad Movies on the podcast last year. This is, without a doubt, the most fun panel that I've ever been a part of, and I can't wait to do it again. We're going to have a few new people on the panel, so it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be fun for me. I don't know how fun it's going to be for the panelists who have to defend bad movies, but we'll see what happens. That's going to be at the Grand Hotel Room B at 6.30 p.m., And finally, on Sunday, March 1st at 11 a.m., I'll be part of the Nerd Cave Retro panel that will be at Grand Hotel Room B. And then fast forward to the afternoon at 2.45 at the Sanger Theater Meeting Room, I'll be moderating the panel for boxing legend Butterbean. And to close things out at Pensacon, I'll be moderating the D. Wallace Q&A at Pensacola Little Theater at 5.15 p.m. And then there are the other panels that Jason mentioned that he'll be doing as well. So between the two of us, we're going to be quite busy. And I will say Defending Bad Movies and the Stephen King adaptations will be recorded for this podcast. So you'll be hearing them as future episodes. So if you're not able to make it out to Pensacon, you'll be able to hear them that way. But if you are, hopefully you'll come out to as many panels as possible. It's going to be a fun time. I'm really excited for this year's Pensacon, more so than I have been the last few years. I think it's because I'm doing quite a bit of stuff that I'm really excited to do, so it's going to be a lot of fun. But for next week's show, so I'm going to hold off on releasing Defending Bad Movies for a week. Next week, I'll be doing another live show where I'll be reviewing the surprising box office success, Sonic the Hedgehog. And I figured at some point I would be talking about this movie on the podcast, but not for the reasons that I expected. If you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, you know my immediate thoughts on the movie, but I'll be really dissecting the movie and then giving my thoughts on what could happen in a potential sequel. On Facebook Live next week, it will be Tuesday, March 3rd at 8.30 p.m. Central Time at facebook.com slash ddiamondpodcast. So hopefully you guys can make it out for that. But until then, you can check out past episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and of course on YouTube. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience. If you want to follow me on social media, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podcast. And of course, thank you to my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for the podcast. You can find all their music on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you once again to Cindy and Jason. Enjoy the rest of your week. Enjoy Pensacon. If you're going to be out at the convention this week, hope to see all of you. Have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for tuning in to another awesome episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I'm your host, Derek Diamond, and I'll see you guys next on Tuesday on Facebook Live. <laughs>